Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello? Hello, can I please speak with Anthony Romero? Hello, Paul. I recognize that voice. How are you? I am very well, and I'm so pleased, Anthony, that you, you're taking the time to be part of the quarantine tapes. It's Oh, I'm delighted. I bet I turned you down. How are you doing, my boy? I'm, How I'm, are you doing? I'm, you know, all things considered, or maybe not considering everything, I'm, I'm <laughs> you know, I'm... I'm doing all right. I've been I've been very diligent with these uh, quarantine tapes. We've we've done a yeah. we've done nearly, no, nearly, nearly a hundred. It, it's quite extraordinary. I know. I know. You, it, it's tr- you're quite the stamina. I listened to a couple of them, but I have not heard all of one hundred. But they're remarkable. I'm, I'm one of my favorite people that you've had on the show. Tell me, tell me who who who, who like Anand is yeah. Anand. I thought was great, and Susan, right? I thought she was remarkable. Larry Wilkinson, a remarkable, but it was good to hear a voice. You leave New York, and then we get a pandemic, and the whole city is really changed. I don't know. Uh, your your departure was almost uh, was almost as uh, frightful. I'd be, I'm cheeky, but I think. I miss having you in New York and in your public library. You were quite an institution of itself, and the conversations you held there were just remarkable and world class. Well, so. th- thank you very, very much, Anthony. I should say that I am speaking with Anthony Romero, who is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. And I won't ask you the question I ask everybody, which is, what have you been up to over the last four months? Because what haven't you been up to? I mean, um, 140 and some suits, lawsuits uh, in in the works now that the ACLU is pursuing. And I'd like to bring one to the foreground now because it's so recent and it's so important. Just last week, Anthony, the ACLU filed a lawsuit against the Department of Homeland Security after they deployed agents against protesters in Portland. Now, what are the yeah. legal, legal what are the legal implications of such a case? Well, for us, I mean, this goes right to the heart of what the ACLU was really founded almost a hundred, over a hundred years ago now, Paul. Yes, uh, to to defend the right of individuals to speak their minds and to protest and to assemble freely. I mean, that's the very roots of our organization founded in the aftermath of, of uh, the Palmer raid. We had a xenophobic racist president, Woodrow Wilson at the time, who deployed the full fury of the Justice Department on immigrants, on people who protested the government. It was the aftermath of the First World War, a very, a very unpopular war. And the government was hell-bent to shut down those who disagreed and dissented with it. And so here we are 100 years later watching the events in Portland. I really, though, I'm even more surprised that this is playing out in with the details in Portland that we're now seeing. 
the idea that we have federal agents uh, who are in combat fatigues and without any insignia or identification of what agency they work for, and whisking away protesters in unmarked vehicles uh, to deliver them to federal courthouses, that when they then read them the Miranda rights, and the individual then requests to talk with a lawyer is when they're released. It's uh, it's 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 Kafkaesque, Paul. If you had asked me years ago, would this be possible? But you would have military forces deployed on the streets of America. It's the same we saw in Lafayette Park, where we're also suing the Department of Homeland Security for how they used the excessive force against the protesters so that President Trump could have a photo op with a Bible in front of a church. I guess the only way that you can get that type of photograph is when you actually clear people away and construct it. But the idea that we have these uh, these forces and these individuals who are being deployed on protesters and uh, for individuals who are basically speaking out against the government. And today, the president on, on Twitter saying that he would do the same in other cities, whether it's Chicago or elsewhere, unless, right. uh, unless right. order were established. Right. He says, I'll, send, so, I'll send more federal law enforcement wherever they're needed. Yeah, well, they're not needed in this way. And that's for sure. And I think what is most eerie about this thing, Paul, that keeps me up at night, although there's much that keeps me up at night, is I the imagine. idea. I wonder if this is a trial run, right? If these are you know, federal forces that are under the kind of the command and control of the President of the United States to stymie and shut down debate in cities where they're not welcome and not asked but not needed. I mean, the governor of Oregon has been pretty clear that they're not being helpful. The mayor of Portland has been very clear. And yet here you have the president inserting himself in, in, in local politics and local dynamics and local law enforcement in a way that just fully exacerbates the, the, the already the lack of trust that exists between law enforcement and communities. So this feels like a powder keg that is just where we're packing it with more gunpowder uh, and who knows how it will blow. Uh, we're very concerned. But, but, uh, and, and obviously the, the legal issues in the, import, in the case in Portland are very straightforward. You have the right to protest. You have, you have the right to, to assemble. Even in a quarantine, even with stay-at-home orders, that there are ways for individuals to, to express themselves, and and they run the risk of being arrested in some cases if they if they break the rules of of what the of what the stay-at-home orders require. But still, the idea that you use these kind of these very heavy uh, uh, tactics to shut down protesters. If you had told me, Paul, that this would play out in some of the large American cities, I would, if you said this to me four or five years ago, or six years ago, before this president, I would have said that's impossible in America. In America, we have rule of law, we have established norms. You will never have federal forces with, un, you know, with, uh, without identification or insignias whisking people away in unmarked cars. That's the type of things you've heard in, in totalitarian regimes in countries that we often decry and criticize. It can never happen in the United States of America. And yet here we are, um, litigating over these facts. So, so you uh, said, Really you quite a startling moment. You said it's a, a dry run, and I'm wondering, a dry run for what? And then add it to that. A dry run for what? You said it's a dry run. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm wondering, what is it a dry run for no 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 and this and the the second comment is anthony you said if i had asked you four years ago or five years ago or maybe even three years ago but do you think that you were just simply naive 
I, I don't know. Perhaps I think I be I, I naive. I don't like to think of myself as naive. I don't I, see I, you Idealistic yeah. or, or optimistic. Or I actually believe in these values. I mean, maybe that's what you can, where I can certainly be faulted. I just never thought that some of the things that we are now witnessing and confronting and decrying and fighting uh, were ever up for grabs. But, um, I mean, this is a, just a very different environment than the one that I ever imagined the state of American democracy to be in. So a dry run, you know, I, I try to be one of these clear-eyed progressives where I don't try to kind of worry about things that seem impossible. And so, so a lot of my a lot of my counterparts and a lot of my members, I have many members across the country who are very worried about the country, say, do you think that Donald Trump, if he loses the election, actually won't leave? Nah, you know, we have that norm, at least it's pretty well established. If he loses the election, he'll have to go. Hmm. But, but as you begin to think about the idea that the president, well, who asked, well, you know, who will the president call upon to defend himself? You know, there is, he doesn't have a local police force, right? That's what the mayors have, that they have the command and control power over police departments. The army, I hope, has learned a lesson that it should stay out of politics, at least most recently with the Lafayette Park incident. It just seems to, they've had to kind of learn their lane once again. But this idea that there are federal law enforcement agents who the president is deploying almost as his personal police force, as keepers of law and order at the behest of the president, and they're unidentified and unmarked and and unmarked vehicles, really tend to chill up my spine. So I begin to think that perhaps my members and my my kind of wild-eyed progressives who have been given to conspiracy theories, maybe they have something at it. And <laughs> the idea that the president could actually insert himself in, in city and and and, and uh, state uh, law enforcement efforts when they are when when the federal government is not invited or requested is really uh, problematic. And then the idea that he's doing it in cities like or pledging at least to do it in cities like Detroit. And Chicago and Portland, possibly Seattle, maybe San Francisco. I mean, these are all the big kind of uh, liberal cities with large minority populations, people of color in those communities, and they begin to exceed the inhabitants of those cities as the enemy. Uh, it's a very dangerous moment, um, but I feel like we're living we're living on the countdown, four months and counting, and then we'll see just how dangerous this moment really was or is. Um, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm stunned, uh, you know, stunned. I, 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 yes, stunned that I, I, I thought there was such a thing, even though I don't really understand the terms, I, I thought there was such a thing as checks and balances, but I, 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 totally. I, I, totally. I, I, I see now, you, you recently said the more I've read about the last couple of weeks about where this country is, the more I'm clear that defund the police is my North Star. What do you mean yeah. by that? What do you mean by that? It's just not working, what we've been doing. We've been doing a lot for a long time. Our very first report on law enforcement was in 1931. So we got behind this report on lawlessness and law enforcement. Uh, we brought the big cases. Miranda, the right to remain silent, was our case. Gideon, the right to a court-appointed attorney. Escobar, be free from a coerced confession. You know, we're the ones who sued Mayor Bloomberg over stop and frisk. You know, it took him many years and a, and a, and a remarkable loss in federal courts, and he wouldn't apologize then. But now, you know, recently he apologized. So we've been working 
on police reform and police accountability for literally decades. And while it certainly improved at some level, it has not worked. It has not worked. We cannot keep pretending that another lawsuit on patterns and practice of a corrupt police department or another training program implicit or explicit bias is going to work. You know, many of the, you know, I'm stunned because you, you know this about me, Paul. I, you know, I was trained in international affairs before I became a domestic civil rights guy and civil liberties guy. And so in, in, you know, in my work around, in my studies around Latin America, we would often talk about civilian control of military and police. So there was an important check and balance that needs to be put in kind of in Latin American countries on the transition to democracy. And that's what we need here, frankly. You know, it's just that we need to lessen that the Latin American transition. So we need to have greater civilian control over police. And the only way to exert the control is to shrink the financing and the budget. And the more I read about how some of these uh, negotiations are completely tied, money and oversight are completely tied with one another. As the police department will negotiate for a little less money if they get a lot more uh, independent and a lot more uh, uh, control. Uh, even in Milwaukee, I was I was stunned to read this. Like you know, the right where all of this is playing out in real time. You know, there was this kind of very kind of difficult uh, union contract uh, negotiation between the police department, uh, the, the city, and the police union, uh, which was I think the Minneapolis Police Federation. And it was completely a quid pro quo that they would give up a little bit on their financial demands if they had greater discretion and greater control over the police uh, forces and the training of police, the police forces. And this great mayor who's been out there on TV, Jacob Fry, who's been talking about the importance of, of, of limiting police abuse and brutality. He was overridden by the local police union when he banned the police officer from attending warrior training in Minneapolis, the police department just reversed him and had the power to reverse him. Incredible. So you got turn the tables on all this. I mean, we have to make sure that the police departments report to and into and are controlled by the elected officials. And the best way to do that is to right-size these budgets. I was watching, uh, reading some of these reports about how Defense Department surplus, this is why these police departments look like standing armies, that Defense Department surplus would be, uh, are granted under this one Department of Defense program, 1033, directly to police forces. That's why you have these armored vehicles right, right. And, these, and these military uh, equipment that look like they're military. They, they do, don't look like they do. They do. And, and they're scary in the same way. And I, I keep thinking, when you think about defund the police, don't you also have to think immediately about defund the military? Yeah, it's connected. It is definitely connected. It goes, goes back to that lesson I learned in my Latin American studies classes, exerting civilian control of military and police. I mean, it is, it is so essential that we kind of, that we right-size the conversation. And when you look at how much we've been spending on police departments, I'm stunned. No, I'm stunned. Like Oakland, I'm almost stunned. 40% of their budget is, is, on police department expenditures. There's a great report for your uh, listeners uh, by the Center for Popular Democracy. They have a whole report, a wonky report, with all the numbers and stats and statistics, per capita spending, by city, looking at the different history. And there's one great author, because I know you're an intellectual, the one great author, if you're going to read one thing on this issue, I would read 
Alex Vitale, B-I-T-A-L-E. He, he's a professor in New York, I think at Fordham, uh, and he's written uh, some wonderful books. There's an interview with him on the on I think at the in, in the Intercept uh, that is really quite good. Those are some of the leading thinkers on connecting financing with control over the police department because we cannot keep pretending that the same type of litigation or advocacy or training program is going to work. You know, the definition of insanity is you keep doing the same thing and you keep expecting a different outcome. So I, I wish not to be insane anymore on police reform. And I think it's really important that we pick, uh, we took our cue from the black-led groups, especially Black Lives Matter, and said, we want to push this as the lever of change. And I thought it was very important for the ACLU to be in strong solidarity with the leadership of Black Lives Matter with the other organizations, that we will take our cue from them. And then we have much to add because we have boots on the ground in right. every state. These are, this, this is a hardcore political battle. Money is about power and politics. And you're not going to defund these police departments without the fight of our lives. And so we need to democratize the appropriations processes. We need to make sure that citizens come to hearings and town halls where budgets are discussed, appropriations are discussed. And the, then when the money is saved from police departments, you, you immediately reinvest them. It's so much, so much about reinvestment and divestment right, right. from police. And reinvestment in in schools, you know, in drug rehab programs, and training programs, and yeah. education and employment programs. Anthony, you know, uh, I had Suketo Meta on the program, and he said, "Let's not only think about defund the police, but refund them." Uh, refund them in a, in, a way, in a way that makes sense. I mean, you know, these twenty-two, twenty-three-year-old kids can't uh, deal with marital problems with guns. But you, your yeah. your first day at the ACLU was just about when September 11th happened. Are there lessons? from 9-11 and its aftermath that can be applied, do you think, to this new moment of fear and emergency? Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, I, I, I think one of the things I, I, um, I learned early on in the 19 years, like you said, I started the week before 9-11, that in moments of crisis is when ideologues sees the crisis to push through a political agenda. No I mean, that is... No kidding. That was, a, that was the lesson of the 9-11 moment. Uh, and we are still living with the consequences and the and the, and the restrictions on liberty. Remember, the Patriot Act was enacted. I'm still litigating on some aspects of the Patriot Act, which is still good law in many respects. Guantanamo is still open. We have the military commissions that are there. So we need to be very mindful that in this moment of a pandemic, in this moment of, of uh, Trump presidency, in this moment of great you know, fear and insecurity that we not put in place uh, government powers that will come to regret and that have a much longer uh, life beyond the current crisis of the right. current moment. Right. And being being inherently skeptical of anything that said is, is utterly necessary or must do. So let's make sure we unpack that before we, we do it to understand it fully. And I think a lot of what we're trying to do right now is to kind of make sure that there's there's a proper check on government overreach. And, and look, you have a federal government with Donald Trump that's on steroids in terms of the type of overreach that they're endeavoring. Uh, 
And and part of the concern that we have is to make sure that the federal government remains uh, as much under the control of kind of a system of checks and balances. It's been hard. It's been hard. I mean, we watch what's been playing out in the immigration context and uh, in all these other contexts. And this administration has, has gotten away with a lot of policies over time that I, I would have been hard-pressed to imagine. Uh, and, and yet, uh, I think the really important part is to make sure that we continue to, to contest it yeah, because, and, and never just accept it. Because in a way, maybe maybe Trump alone is, is not the issue. You mentioned Guantanamo, and two years ago, you said that probably the most contentious meeting I've ever had, you said, was with President Obama. What was the nature yeah. of that meeting, and what made it so contentious? Well, he was unhappy with me. I was <laughs> I was invited to the White House, and I thought, you know, I was pleased and, and pleased and proud to be at the White House um, with a relatively new President Obama, uh, who was inviting us in. Little did I know that the reason why I was invited in was actually not to be... <laughs> Not to take a photograph on the White House lawn, but actually to be dressed down for my criticism of the of the president around Guantanamo and the and then subsequently with the the warrantless wiretapping program that was unveiled by Edward Snowden, where you and I left off with with Ed Snowden, who became our client. That's right. Um, and I and I think our, our President Obama was very was very unhappy with me, so he was was uh, critical of his. Uh, unwillingness to push the envelope as aggressively as he needed to. And a lot of the challenges were now confronting, especially with the kind of this very strong kind of uh, exertion of, of, of White House power. But, you know, the whole trajectory began under George Bush and deepened under uh, President Obama. And uh, no one really wanted to challenge the power of the White House to act unilaterally. And when I criticized the president for not shutting down Guantanamo or for allowing for the, uh, the, the drone attack um, that we thought were extrajudicial killings of individuals that were, you know, that were uh, killed, uh, one of them even an American citizen, without jury or without trial. And we contested that with President Obama. You know, much of these powers are the powers that then Donald Trump inherited right. uh, is is an executive branch that was was that was accustomed to working with very little criticism, and um, now Donald Trump took it to a whole other level, obviously. But uh, it's it, you know certainly in the immigration context, it's much of this rolled into uh, from one to another, and. Um, you know, my criticism of President Obama was that he said, you know, I really, it's not, he, he called me on the carpet and said that my criticism in comparison to his predecessor was simply not helpful, to which I had the retort that as long as the, the, the policies remained in place, the criticisms and the comparisons were fair and accurate, and they would continue from our corner. And I think one thing that's important for the ACLU is never to be in bed with any political party. Right. Um, or any political leader, we have to we have to be we have to contest even the most popular president. And so I'm proud that of that one conversation I had with President Obama at, at the in, in the cabinet room, even though it was difficult and challenging. I'm proud that we stood up and and asked the hard questions. I'm proud that the ACLU, although I was not around for it, I can take no credit for it, but 
It was the only organization to have the courage to stand up to FDR during the internment of Japanese Americans, another popular president during wartime. And we looked back on that as one of our finest moments that we had the courage of our convictions to to challenge the the internment of Japanese Americans through a Supreme Court case that we brought on behalf of Fred Korematsu. So I think our job is to is to ask the tough questions and to hold government's feet to the fire and know that we will be here. But what, what I tell my folks <laughs> sometimes who get very dispirited, Paul, is that no matter what, we will we will we will outlast this president. We will outlast Donald Trump. We'll see him when he actually ends up exiting the Oval Office. And we'll be here for the next one who walks in and tries to assert similar uh, executive branch power. But this one is this one is unique. This one is more of a full full court press than I would ever imagine. We have over almost 400 lawsuits now that we've brought against the Trump administration on a whole broad range of issues from LGBT rights. Amazing, amazing, uh, amazing. Uh, you know, immigrants' rights. Yeah. Uh, uh, so we are we are we're, we're making sure that you know all of this uh, be hotly contested. Uh, they, they, it matters too much to, to just give it up without a fight. I take it you haven't been invited to the White House under Trump. I have. I've been. I've been. I've been. I've been. I've been with a uh, not in recent history, not in recent months, but. I developed a bit of a rapport with Jared Kushner. Uh, we agree on things like criminal justice. I believe it's important to, you know, he's the senior advisor to the president of the United States, probably the second most powerful man in the country. I've not met President Trump, but I've, uh, I've worked with Jared Kushner on a couple of things, and there are many things on which we have disagreed. Um, I, I figure my job is if I am asked to provide insight and advice, then I provide it. And I also think that if people call and ask me for my opinion, I I, uh, I I deserve to give them, you know, the the benefit of the doubt to give them my opinion. And um, well, a lot of what I, I talked with Jared Kushner and uh, was uh, off the record on different issues, so I don't I can't say too much, you know. Although I I must say that I always felt like if any of my conversations were being recorded, I would feel fine if they were released because I feel I I just. Tell what I tell the tell the truth and shame the devil. So that's what you have to do. Uh, and, uh, but at the same time, I think there were places where uh, Krishna was able to really move our agenda forward, especially on the first step back on criminal justice reform. And so I think the important part is to kind of is to make a difference for the issues and the values that we care on. In, and in, um, in closing, Anthony, very very sadly, earlier this year you received the Woodrow Wilson Award at Princeton University, <laughs> <laughs> where, yeah. we, where we both most of our students. How how do you think yeah. how do you think his legacy uh, should be handled and in a way fitting into all of this is wilson was involved with the palmer raids which helped catalyze yeah. in a way the formation of the aclu and the very school yeah. that gave you that award now has a different name <laughs> so so i'm, I'm yeah. just wondering if you can i think Bring, I think bring all great. of this together. I think, I think it's great that Princeton decided to retire the name of Woodrow Wilson from the school. Um, we we have to make decisions about the future, not about the past. And I'm sure that the trustees of Princeton have heard from a lot of the older alums who were aghast that they dared to rename the school or residential college that was named after a, pres a U.S. president. But but I think we need to kind of think very seriously what type of message we send to the future leaders. And the, the, the students of Princeton are what Princeton is. Princeton 
Princeton is nothing but a group, a, a cluster of gothic, beautiful buildings um, that were really nothing much to write home about, built in the 20th century, most of them, not, not even that old. Uh, but what makes Princeton so unique is uh, the students, and uh, it's uh, the, the association with a president of uh, the United States uh, was it is problematic for the students and makes the place feel as unwelcome as it as it does. Uh, they also have changed the name. So I was delighted that they changed the name. I also d- accepted the award with glee because I thought it was a little bit of delicious irony. You know, the idea that you had a, a gay Puerto Rican man head of the organization who was accepting the award uh, 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 named after the president who actually gave birth to my organization in, in revolt to his actions and policies. It was kind of a, it was almost like a, a written for TV movie. It had kind of such a kind of a, kind of a delicious twist at the end of it. Yeah. So, but I think Princeton did the right thing by renaming it. And it's the same thing with these monuments that now we need to, that the people are contesting. I mean, I, I, I don't know why we have such a hard time taking down these monuments uh, to Confederate leaders and Confederate soldiers. I mean, it's just like, I don't know of any other country in the world that I've been, I've traveled to that has monuments to individuals who stood up for slavery. I, I, I have yet to see one in another country. Here's a monument to a slave owner because of his ideology. And then the idea that these were also individuals who led this country through this kind of abysmal civil war that, that cost so much life. So what was basically was at play was whether or not America would undo the its original sin of chattel slavery and they lost i mean when have we ever built a monument to losers who bring us to the literally to the brink of war who stand up for this anachronistic and anti-human uh, humanist uh, institution of slavery so i i don't understand what all this was about and um frankly i think the more we move to the future and focus less on some of the the injustices of the past, the better the future will be. And that's that's how I think we'll remember, you know, this moment with this president. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll step out of, I, I have to believe that the America that comes out of the COVID pandemic and the Donald Trump administration has got to be a country that is fairer and kinder and more progressive and more thoughtful and where the, where the playing field is more level and people are given a real chance. I have to believe that we come out of this, this, this crucible, uh, a better uh, society. Anthony, it's and maybe been, that will be naive. Anthony, but know, it's I, the only way to live. Anthony, it's been such a, a pleasure to speak with you. I could continue for so much longer, and we will have that pleasure at some point soon. And I hope your parting words um, really hold true. I, I, I too, even though I'm a skeptical optimist, I still remain so. And I, I thank you so much. So very, very much. Take care of yourself. Stay okay, safe. Okay, I can't stay, wait to see you. I can't stay. wait to lay eyes on you, Paul. Take yeah. care, okay? You do too. All, right, All the friend. best to you. You're okay. All bye. the best. Okay, bye. dear boy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support.